Okay, uh, welcome to Pop Cultural Osmosis. My name is Kyle Dietz. And I'm Ryan Harrington. And our favorite today is Favorite Remake. So, uh, you have some suspicions about what I'm going to say. I have absolutely no idea what you're going to say, Ryan. So, uh, why don't you go first and tell us what your, what your favorite remake is. Well, my favorite remake, um, I think is Ocean's Eleven. Mm-hmm. It's just a really good film. And, I, I mean, I see it all the time on cable TV. You know, mm-hmm. it's a Saturday afternoon. And you might be kind of hungover and you turn on the TV and it's just playing. And no matter what, I'll just sit down and watch it. And it's fun. And, like, the acting is great and everyone seems like they're just having fun. And then, you know, the whole plot or the the whole plot of, like, this heist film is is great. And I just love the, the genre in general. Everything about it seems fun. Don't think I don't see what you're doing. What are we doing, Ruben? You're gonna steal from Terry Benedict. You better goddamn know. This sort of thing used to be civilized. You'd hit a guy, he'd whack you, done. But with Benedict, at the end of this, you better not know you're involved, not know your names, or think you're dead because he'll kill you. And then he'll go to work on you. That's why we have to be very careful, very precise. Mm, well funded. Yeah. You gotta be nuts, too. And you're gonna need a crew as nuts as you are. Uh, Ocean's Eleven's a great movie. Um, and uh, I... I mean, it's not one of my favorites. I've seen it a couple of times. But, you know, every time I... Every time it's on, I, I mean, I'm surprised by how much I enjoy it for some reason. Like, I always expect it that I don't really like it, but then I watch it and I'm like, actually, this movie's awesome. Yeah, that's what it is. Because, like, I just thought about it, I'm like... Every every time I I see it, I'm like oh I've watched this a billion times and then I just sit there and watch the whole thing again I'm mm-hmm. like well okay <laughs> I guess I must like it more than I more than I realized <laughs> um okay well uh, had you seen the original uh, I have not I have which not is either too bad um when I was thinking about this I had a, a rule for myself that I was gonna only do movies where I had seen both versions because otherwise I was afraid that I wouldn't know maybe the old one was better than the new one and you know then could it really be a successful remake if it's not as good as the old one so um I I limited myself to films that I'd seen both versions of which cut out some that I think could have climbed the list pretty easily so for example um I think 310 to Yuma with uh, Russell Crowe and Christian Bale's a great movie um but I've not seen the original. Um, I think uh, Takeshi Miike's Miike Miike's. I don't know how to say that name. It has two eyes in it. Yeah. Um, Thirteen Assassins is a great movie, but I've not seen the uh, old older Japanese samurai film that it's based on. Um, and the one that probably would have been my number one pick, which if I would have seen both versions, is uh, The Mummy. Um, the incredible Brendan Fraser uh, and Rachel Weisz vehicle from uh, 1999, but I have not seen the 1932 film of the same name, which starred Boris Karloff. I didn't um, even realize that that it was a remake. <laughs> so, uh, so my actual pick is going to be uh, True Grit, which is the Coen oh. Brothers movie from 2010. Um, and which I have a lot of experience with in all its forms because I've seen the 2010 version and I've seen the 1969 version and I've read the novel. So I know 
kind of all of the different incarnations of of True Grit. Um, the novel's great. It's incredibly funny. Charles Portis is a, a really funny writer. This is pretty much his only like dyed in the wool western, um, and he he comes at it with a lot of wit and that uh, you know I don't think that other authors felt quite so obliged to to bring to the genre. Um, I think that the 1969 version is horrible. Um, I think that it has this old fat John Wayne and this, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's her name? The the girl who's in it, Kim, 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 uh, Kim Darby, um, brings a lot of energy to the role, but she's obviously about nine years too old based on how old ha- uh, Hattie's supposed to be in the in the book so it just uh you know it was it's not a it's not a very good adaptation in my opinion and the 2010 version the coen brothers explicitly said like we're going to go back to the book we're gonna is going to be much more an adaptation of the book than a remake of the movie um even though there are some actual shot for shot uh similarities um and it's just uh i don't know it's just an incredible movie it's a great take on the western genre um it's funny in the same way that the book is, but also emotionally involving. And I don't know. I, I love this movie. I know that it, it it's kind of considered one of the Coen brothers' lesser works uh, by a lot of people, but I think that's a little bit unfair. Um, and I think it's a great remake because it improves on the original in every way. It takes what's good about it and replicates it, but also leaves behind everything that's bad. And Jeff Bridges is so much better as Rooster Cogburn than uh, John Wayne was. Can we depart this afternoon? We? You are not going. That is no part of it. You have misjudged me if you think I'm silly enough to give you $50 and watch you simply write off. I'm a boned U.S. Marshal. That wastes but little with me. I will see the thing done. Can't go after Ned Pepper and band the hard men look after a baby at the same time. I am not a baby. Won't be stopping at boarding houses where there's warm beds and hot grub on the table. I'll be traveling fast, eating light. But the sleeping is done to take place on the ground. Well, I have slept out at night before. Papa took me a little Frank Coon hunting last summer on the Petty Jean. We were in the woods all night. We sat around a big fire and yarn all told ghost stories. We had a good time. Cool, honey. This ain't no coon hunt. Okay. True Grit was not on my short list. What, what did you think that I was going to pick? Um, 310 to Yuma did come up, but it wasn't a front runner. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, up there was The Departed. Mm hmm. Because I know you really liked Infernal Affairs. Yeah, see, that's a, that's a situation where I, I think The Departed is a great movie that's trying to do different things than Infernal Affairs, and I don't think it's as successful. Fair. Um, and then, uh,. Battlestar Galactica. Oh, interesting. I hadn't really thought about TV because which, remakes are a lot rarer on I, TV. I, I was afraid of that TV remakes would, would not be on your mind. Yeah, well, I mean, there are, there haven't been very many. I mean, I can't think of very many others that are Well, you know, now they're kind of well, coming back. Yeah, Battlestar kind of inspired some you know, bionic woman and stuff like that, but... Um, yeah, that hadn't even occurred to me. I'm not, I, I still don't think... That I would have picked it, even though, okay, because I haven't really seen the original Battlestar except to turn it on and be like, "Wow, this is horrible," and turn it back off again. So right, but I mean, I don't think I didn't I didn't consider that at all in my mm-hmm. opinion of my criteria was 
is this a remake? Yes or no? Do you like this a lot? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, in some of these where, it, you know, it takes the same name, but it's not even like I was reading through the, uh, the uh, plot summary for the original mummy and it doesn't sound anything like the mummy that Brendan Fraser starred in so then is it even really a remake it's not even really clear uh, oh so it's so but it, it's not even clear if it's supposed to be a remake no it is it is it was pitched as a remake oh it, they did, okay well yeah. okay yeah um, and it has a similar it has the same uh, the mummy's name is the same it's the same mummy that they bring back to life and like the outlines of the plot are kind of similar but all of the secondary characters are different and you know the plot's totally different obviously and stuff like that so I'm not really sure you know how close they are okay so I mean this topic has like a, been bouncing around in my head for a little while and it's not really very cohesive, so it might just come out in a big jumble. <laughs> but it was sparked because a couple of things happened simultaneously. First of all, I'm always, for whatever reason, I'm perpetually a few weeks behind on Parks and Rec. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I was watching Parks and Rec, and I saw the wedding episode between uh, Ben and, and Leslie, uh, where they kind of get married on the spur of the moment and stuff like that. And it was just a really lovely episode. And kind of concurrently, I have like a watching group with a couple of my brothers and a couple of our friends um, where for a long time we were watching Walking Dead and then Watching Dead recently ended. And so then Game of Thrones started on the same day. So we just kind of switched over to watching Game of Thrones. Um, and we do that like every week. And, and um, like the contrast between Parks and Rec and Game of Thrones made me and Walking Dead and, and those kind of shows made me really think a lot about like how like dark television is these days and 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 it seems like like most shows these days are, are trying to be like dark or gritty or real or visceral like in, in some way or even if they are supposed to be like comedies and stuff like that like the, even the characters like pretty nasty and mean a lot of the time um, and I, I, you just look around and you're like uh, Archer, like you know, <laughs> pretty pretty nasty, mean people. Um, even Community, which, where I love some of the characters, but it's you know kind of a common joke on Community that they're pretty you know cruel to one another and to people who, especially people who are outside the group. Right, they're um, not the best people. Exactly, like uh, you know, um, Happy Endings is a, is a similar situation, and it seems like to me that they're especially as compared to the past, there are comparatively few shows that are just designed to make you feel like happy and good about the world um and parks and rec is one of those that episode with the wedding just made me absurdly happy like sitting there with a big smile on my face and i feel like that's the feeling that parks and rec is most often trying to evoke uh, i think new girl is another one who most of the time um is is striving to make its characters be not perfect but at least not actively cruel to one another to or to the people around them um but I don't know. I don't really know. I've been trying to figure out, and and maybe there isn't, an, you know, enough here for for us to talk about. You can let me know. But I've been trying to figure out whether it says something about our culture or where we are in in this time period um, that we seem to be gravitating so much toward these shows where the people are so awful to to one another, like 
Breaking Bad, like Mad Men, um, to some extent, you know, where where we identify with Don Draper, even though he's a total asshole, like Game of Thrones, where pretty much everyone is despicable in some way or another. Um, it just seems very odd to me. To a certain degree, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, we're not necessarily idealistic or wholly good people. Mm-hmm. And that, so it's easier to relate to people that are troubled and or flawed. Like, um, like, Don Draper is certainly no great guy, but, you know, he's burdened with certain, uh, he, he's burdened with certain memories of his past and who he was and things that are expected of him and mm-hmm. those weigh down on him. And I think to a certain degree, they're very, that's relatable to people mm-hmm. like, you know, girls, these aren't, I have not watched a lot of girls to be fair, but yeah, these are not, uh, perfect people either, but they're, they're struggling to get by and, you know, on their on their own pretty much for the first time mm-hmm. and i think a lot of people relate to that and i think so to a certain degree it's sort of like um people understand their motivations and then it's also sort of comforting to see see that the, those motivations played out on tv and then things kind of i don't not like work out but get resolved yeah well and and i think that we are living through kind of a golden a kind of a golden age of television right now like i think that the tv that's on is is of extremely high quality in a way that it maybe uh wasn't a couple years ago but i feel like well that's almost certainly just because of competition now yeah exactly and you know there's way more cable networks and stuff like that but it really seems like um and maybe this is all due to the influence of just a couple key players like i think christopher nolan is to some extent to blame here um i feel like after batman begins and especially after dark knight rises it came to be that everything needed to be like not gritty. dark knight rises dark uh, knight. oh i'm sorry dark knight um everything needed to be like gritty and real and you know it's like let's reboot everything but like grittier let's make all the gritty just became like a real catchphrase um and I think The Sopranos is pretty huge here, too, where, you know... The, uh, I think The Sopranos is a huge... Really been a model for all of television as to, you know, what this what this is supposed to look like. But, like, I think back to, like, like like the, the late 80s, early 90s in TV, and, like, what do you have on... You have, you know, like, you have Cheers, you have All in the Family, you have, uh, you know, well, Star Trek The Next Generation, which is a hugely idealistic show, especially about the people uh, on the on the spaceship a couple years later you have friends you know like when i think about the big tv series of that time like they just don't seem to be as depressed about like the human condition you know it's like you you look at the lineups of some of these cable networks and it's like um you know breaking bad is obviously a tv show about horrible people um fx is like the master of this and has been for a while you know you went back a couple of years and you had like in the same like nighttime block you had like rescue me uh, the Shield, um, Nip Tuck, 
and uh you know like uh i don't i'm not i can't remember the other like the fourth show in that in that block but it was like these are all like incredibly uh dark uh television shows that that are very like the mood of them is very depressed about everything um fx is actually spinning off into two channels right is it really yeah i think um it's going to be FX for dramas, and then, um, is it, are they calling it FXX? I think so, for for um, their comedies. That's which, pretty weird. And, and honestly, you're right, their comedies aren't exactly uplifting. No, I mean, it's like it's always either. sunny. They're, they're, they're horrible people, too. <laughs> they're just put in funnier situations. Yeah, well, it's always sunny is like, you know... They are the builds on the arrested development model of having a a troop of like horribly horrible like unrelatable people um who are inept but somehow still mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. survive and even Louis, which is like to some extent the most optimistic show like Louis might be the most optimistic show on all of f x and like what does that say about f x <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> I just think it's fascinating that when people move into this territory, like when, you know, we've seen a lot of the, a lot of, uh, these kind of, um, ancillary players try to edge into this market over the last couple of years, you know, new cable networks who previously relied on other types of programming, trying to make it, um, or people who were never in this game to begin with, like Netflix, try to make it. And like Netflix, like House of Cards is, is a, a horribly pessimistic show. Like it is very compelling and I loved watching it and I watched it all really fast and now I'm kind of missing it. But like, it, you know, it was also grim anti-hero uh, who you're oh, not really certainly. rooting for in the lead. Um, Hemlock Grove, their follow-up show, seems to be kind of in that same vein. Um, History Channel's new cable show vikings is also you know purportedly more historically accurate but just as kind of uh violent and brutal as as all the rest of these so oh, but i mean i've heard it's kind of ridiculous in the way that it's historically accurate yeah Not that's why i was there were there were air quotes around that in in my the, mind the way it presents it it's historical accuracy i think is supposed to be su- not suspect just poorly done maybe yeah it's i mean it's it's not a great show it's certainly no game of thrones but i kind of enjoyed the first couple episodes that i saw of it i feel like it's supposed to be like game of thrones for people that can't get hbo (laughs) that's probably true (laughs) um so i don't know i just i feel like and 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 i you know I've, I've, i've we've had this on the topics list for basically since I watched that episode of, episode of Parks and Rec and I kind of got done with the episode and sat there for a moment and was like, why don't more TV series make me feel like this? Like, why isn't, you know, why isn't it, like, joy to some extent the 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 feeling that more TV series aim for? And, and I don't really have a good answer except that it just seems different than it used to be. Um, you know... And I think it's interesting that Parks and Rec is carrying this on because I always found the American version of The Office was sort of the most optimistic show on TV for a long time. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was um, actually a huge change from the British version, which was so yeah. incredibly pessimistic. It's the British version is soul crushing. Mm-hmm. Where these pe- like the resol- like the resolution is like nothing works out, and they're all still kind of stuck mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there. And then, but everything in the American version of The Office gives you hope. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think Parks and Rec is very much in the same way. Parks and Rec seems almost at times to me to be like them actively trying to prove that comedy doesn't have to be cruel to somebody. You know, that you can get comedy from things like a guy ordering a lot of eggs and bacon or, um, you know, like a Roomba that has a iPod dock on top of it, you know. <laughs> right. Like it doesn't have to be mean to be funny or everyone's obsession with a miniature horse. Um, you know, and I mean, I guess you could say that it's they're occasionally very cruel to J- poor Jerry, and um, to some extent, it's a little bit cruel to like small town Americana or small town Indiana or whatever. But that's a different kind of cruelty, in in my opinion, than like uh, I don't know. I just think some of the stuff that some of the stuff that that sneaks by on the veneer of happiness in popular shows just seems weird to me when actually these people are doing horrible things like uh Barney Stinson is like basically a serial rapist um and in a lot of ways like uh uh how i met your mother is like a little bit less overtly pessimistic than um you know some of these other shows we've been talking about like community or whatever but has at its very heart like a lot of that same toxic group dynamic, a lot of that same uh, characters acting without much regard for other characters' feelings. Like not to the same extent, but it's kind of still there at the core. Oh yeah, and I mean that's just because I think that's how people are. Yeah, yeah. And I see this a lot with uh, like the dramas of the week too. Like if you look on like you know, um like CSI or Criminal Intent or any of those shows like it where it seems like the whole point of the show at this point is just to come up with more and more disturbing and creative ways for like people to kill each other because like the show runs on murders so we just have to have as many murders as we can and they have to get increasingly they'll have to build upon each other so that you know you have to top last week's murder right. with this murder um and uh those always just kind of confuse me because those are intended for like mass market audiences. Like this is not some niche. These are not little niche shows where people are, you know, only, only the rabid fans are watching. Like these are millions of people a week shows about like having crazy sex dungeons and you know, like, it's just like people getting stabbed with icicles and stuff like that. Like it's just really crazy. And Mandy Patinkin actually said that he left, uh, what, what was it? He was on Criminal Minds, right? Uh, I think I think so. I haven't. I don't watch it, so. Yeah, that he left that show because he couldn't deal with the, like, just having to go in and rehearse these lines week after week after week after week, where he was just talking about how these how horribly these people had all died. Of course, he then went and joined Homeland, which is not, you know. <laughs> much better is it is differently pessimistic but yeah <laughs> maybe just as pessimistic but probably not as monotonous either um it's just it's just interesting and it's weird and i wonder whether um we'll begin to see a backlash to it where people get tired of the kind of 
emotional uh, investment that you have to make and and uh, and the kind of lengths that you have to go through with these characters. Like, there was plenty of human drama on West Wing, and yet the characters were not constantly just all being cruel to one another. It was actually a very optimistic show. Um, and especially in the drama world, I look around right now and I don't see anything like that at all even the newsroom which is the same guy is uh you know almost gone completely the other direction where it is also now incredibly pessimistic about the state of its you know industry and the, the people on the show and stuff like that i mean well to a certain degree i disagree just because i think the newsroom is doing the same thing that the west wing did and that like they're uh even at the beginning of the West Wing I feel like they kind of realized that they hadn't done much in their first year and they've been very ineffectual. Mm-hmm. And at the start of the show, you know, they'd already been there for a year and so that's when they kinda to put their game face on and go for their big idealism. Which yeah. is kinda what the newsroom was doing their for this first season, you know? Mm-hmm. They realized that they had kind of given in to what it is just to to stay alive in uh, cable news, but now they want to bring real news or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're injecting that idealism back into things. Yeah. Um, and I, I will say that for all his flaws, I think Sorkin does a very good job of uh, balancing dramatic situations with uh sometimes lighthearted uh situations yeah i mean and you do know a lot more about the newsroom than i do because i have not been uh you know following along with the show did you watch the whole season no i didn't i only watched the first oh. i think six or so episodes um fair enough maybe not even that many maybe only five i watched until basically um an episode where he goes to a psychiatrist. The other thing that sparked this was watching The Walking Dead on a weekly basis, which, you know, is maybe the grimmest of all of these a very grim shows uh, and and one in well, which people are forced to make the worst kind of these decisions. It's hard to be at all optimistic in a show about the end of the world. True, true. I'm just kind of shocked that it's as popular as it is and that people watch it. You know, it, it is a show that is regularly tripling or quadrupling the ratings of, you know, these other maybe even more critically acclaimed shows. And a couple weeks ago, a guy killed a zombie with a chair, then ripped open that zombie's arm, extracted his ulna, and used it to stab another zombie in the eye. Like, it's like some really, really serious shit going down in this show. And people have to kill their family members on a very regular basis. Like, they have to shoot their family members in the face at least once every three or four episodes. Um, and, I, and I guess I'm just wondering, like, how much of this people can take. Or, or like, whether there's a, a limit on how, you know, if... if uh, if next season we have, you know, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, the series, like, <laughs> will people still be down for that? Or is there a point at which they just, you know, are like, no, I can't take it anymore. Like, give me, you know, 
let me watch uh it you know cheers or or baywatch reruns or something else like when i what i used to watch on television a kind of related question that i have um and one that i read an article about that that sparked it it's not not something that i came up with by myself but i think it's something that's interesting to think about is whether or not the number there's a cap on the number of serialized tv shows that can be on the air at one time like is it possible we have too much serialized drama on tv right now going forward with technology i think if there is a cap it's just getting much higher and higher because they can segment the segment the market to an extent that you'll only watch the shows that you are very interested in watching yeah and then you just just everything from uh netflix archives to dvring it makes it that much easier to stay on top of serialized tv true true and people do have proven to have a remarkably uh uh deep interest in some of these shows i'm always kind of flabbergasted that so many people watch game of thrones considering the level of commitment that it takes to to figure out what the hell is going on at that show at any given point in time you know like who this character is and remember what they're doing even though they haven't been on screen in like seven episodes or you know um, remember what their name is and who they're allied with and stuff like that it's incredibly complicated Uh, and I'm always kind of surprised that people stick with it and don't just give up and say to hell with this show like I can't remember you know which goddamn Stark this is or whatever um uh you know but i i feel like there's like there's a pretty you know there's a pretty stable number of people in the general population of the united states who say read a novel in a year you know like maybe it's like something probably depressingly low but maybe like 35 percent of uh americans read a novel in any given year right sure and i wonder you know there must be a similar percentage for watching serialized television like you know maybe uh 60 percent of the american public makes a concerted effort to follow a serialized tv show over the course of a year and like i wonder if there is a point at which they actually just saturate that market and they just have enough good serialized tv like i already kind of feel this like i know mad men is good and i just don't watch it um i know breaking bad is good and i haven't watched breaking bad either um I've never seen The Sopranos. Uh, and that, Well, that's the other thing is that the back catalog for these things just keeps growing um, with shows that are off the air. So, you know, I, I am pretty much as big of a fan of gritty, dramatic, serialized TV as there is. And there are tons of shows that I don't watch or haven't watched. Um, and, and I bet everybody's just like me. So maybe they just need for, you know, enough people to have enough uh interest that they glom onto the shows they happen to glom onto but um i don't know there's only so many hours in a week to watch really great tv and each one of these shows requires a bit of an emotional investment you know you can't just plop down on the couch after a long day and like pop on an episode of uh the wire or something like you need to be in a certain frame of mind right and i well i think that's I think there's a certain uh, logic to developing TV series like that because it keeps it keeps you hooked in there. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if they get you for an episode of Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead, 
it's pretty much the whole season. Mm-hmm. Um, or, whereas if you watched an entertaining, uh, lighthearted, episodic TV show, you might want to look at it again, but there's not a strong compulsion to. Yeah, like I I think The Wire is an amazing TV show, and I've probably only ever watched any given episode of The Wire one time, but I've seen episodes of Arrested Development so many times that I can quote basically everything about them. And 30 Rock and Firefly, and it's just easier to, to do the rewatching for shows where, you know, it's right. not an like, emotional commitment to sit down and watch it. But, I mean, I don't think... And that's the thing. I don't think... Um, produ- producers are necessarily interested in you wanting to rewatch things. They want you to want to watch new episodes. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, because, like, the concept of reruns and syndication, I think, has become much weaker... Even if they make money off the DVD releases, they only make it once. Whereas with, you know, how much money have they made rerunning Seinfeld for the last 15 years? Right. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, especially as some of these, uh, as some of these uh, people become kind of more established players and kind of settle in. And it's just a given now that, you know, History Channel and Netflix will be debuting new pilots. Um, I can't believe History Channel is program that's so weird <laughs> you know maybe if arrested development which as it looks like it's going to be is going to be an absolutely enormous hit in may maybe that'll kickstart a new uh half hour comedy craze and you know in a year we'll be talking about where all of those nice dramas go that we used to watch but <laughs> i just think it's interesting did you read the article that i i, I might have sent it to you i can't remember uh, it was a oh. tv guide it was about how like it's pilot season right now where they're filming all these pilots and so many of these cable networks are trying to get in on the pilot season that like yeah, everyone just, is stretched so thin like there's, there's like no gaffers no left yeah there or yeah, yeah there's no anybody left <laughs> it's like hollywood is at capacity for how much tv it can make i also wonder whether the arrested development netflix thing will lead to more of these series like being revived or picked back up by other uh, providers, you know, and I'll also I think Cougar Town is a pretty good um, case uh, study for this. Like, they're considering uh, doing a similar thing with Happy Endings, where they you know sell it off to USA or something, and they sponsor the new episodes. Oh, but I mean, what 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 else? Well, I mean, I guess Veronica Mars and their Kickstarter project showed that there's a large enough fan base to get that done at least. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how many more series there are out there that have these fan bases. No, me neither, especially since oftentimes, well, not oftentimes, occasionally the reboots end up as something that's totally different from the originals in a way that, you know, it wasn't even really expected. Like, the if if I saw a Kickstarter for a Battlestar Galactica reboot and I hadn't seen the new Battlestar Galactica, I would not necessarily assume that it was going to be a great television show because the original's not a great television show. <laughs> so I'm not really sure how many of these... Uh, of these former, uh, former, uh, uh, what do you call them? Franchises they can revive in, in that way. Veronica Mars was a little bit of an, an outlier in that. In and that same aspect. with the rest of development. Yeah. 
I also think, just because we're talking about The Walking Dead, I also think Talking Dead is like the most fascinating show on television right now. A television show based around discussing another television show? Yes, it's entirely just, and it's brilliant because... AMC doesn't have anything to run after Walking Dead. You know, they don't have that many original programs. It's not right. like their Sunday nights are just stuffed with stuff. So, like, they paid Chris Hardwick, you know, like 20 bucks an hour to sit around in a room and talk to... <laughs> they pay him 20 bucks an no, hour. I don't know how much they pay him, but it can't be that expensive. No, um, well, I mean, it definitely can't be expensive to produce, but I mean, no. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they pay him, you know, yeah. more than 20 bucks an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. You pay him. Pay him some incredibly small amount of money by tv standards um and then you get you know these nerdy usually not particularly well known but well known within their fields people to come in for the the thing and you, and you just uh you know you just hang around and chat about the show for a while like and it's like no one everyone's too lazy to change the channel and um, they're interested in seeing the interviews and stuff, and you know yeah, they pull in stuff it, it, from Twitter and stuff like that. It's like very effective fan engagement in a way that I think every single channel should be looking at and trying to copy. Like if they'd had that about Lost, people would have gone nuts. Oh yeah, are you kidding me? <laughs> Although, could you imagine a like pitching that to ABC? Uh, like we want you to not air like what was on ABC at the same time as Lost. We want you to not air Desperate Housewives. And instead, we want you to air, you know, this semi-well-known. There's this guy on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> he makes videos that other people like to watch. He's just gonna come on the air for an hour and talk about Lost. And sometimes we'll have kind of famous people on there. You but know, not like, like real some, famous people. Sometimes just like... it'll be like Pat Oswalt. and then like, but sometimes it'll just be like, uh, you know, I'm looking at the guest list here, like. Um, Kumal Nanjani, who's like a very little-known Indian comic, and Todd McFarland, who's the creator of Spawn. Those are going to be your guests for the week. They're not exactly like the most, you know, um, the most uh, up-to-date celebrities or, or, you know, the hottest celebrities. And yet it it's like beaten like network tv i don't it's like five and a half million viewers a night like it's it's uh it's it, you know it's one of the most po- if, if it were on fox cbs or abc or nbc it would be like one of their most popular shows oh my god if it was on nbc they'd be so happy <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if they get that many people watching their network in a week <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's really. I just think it's hilarious. And I think if if you at all want to um, have more engagement with your audience of your shows and stuff like that, like I think that every network should be looking at what they're doing. I think HBO should do a similar thing for Game of Thrones. Maybe not exactly the same. You know, like I don't really want there to be a hour long show after every show that I watch that's devoted just to talking about that show. No, that would get old real fast. It would get old really and fast. But like some the, shows can't support that. The idea of like having a place where people can talk about your like where famous people or like relatively famous people or even just like people like Yvette Nicole Brown from community can like hang out and talk about the show and geek out over it and show, you know, I don't know, like maybe maybe it's like a video podcast form, maybe it's just something you put up on YouTube, but I think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned there in terms of like engaging with your fan base and really bringing them in in a very organic and involved way. 
to the tune of 5 million people a night willing to sit around and just watch Chris Hardwick talk to people about the show they just watched. That's oh, yeah, because, I mean, bizarre. back in the day, like, before this, when I just watched other TV shows, like, in the late 90s, like, you would do that, except you'd, after the show, you would go on the internet forums mm-hmm. and talk to your friends on the message board. Yeah, like, like the television the was out, pity forums and stuff like that. Yeah. God, I remember doing that as a kid. Or before, even before that, you would just talk about, like, the next day to people. Like, that's oh, where the, the whole water cooler water effect. cooler thing comes from. I mean, I didn't have a job then, so I didn't have a water cooler to congregate around. It was very hard to get other 10-year-olds at recess to talk about last night's episode of Mad About You, so... We did talk a lot about Pokemon when I was 10 or 11, but it wasn't really a, wasn't really a roundtable discussion. We didn't really consider the flaws of the episode. We just talked about how awesome the Pokemon were. Misty's motivation this week just didn't make any sense. It was really out of character for her. <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, that's true, cause you got me, baby, I got you, baby. I got you, baby. Well, Groundhog's Day, I mean, one of the nice things about the our new setup here is that we get to watch the most influential movies in a given genre, but they're also happen to be the best movies in a given genre. Groundhog's Day is an incredible movie. Like, I had forgotten to some extent just how good this movie is. You said that you hadn't seen it in a really long time, right? I know. I don't think I had seen it since, like, I was in elementary school. And well, what did you, you think revisiting it this time? It was fun. It was good. Um, And I was kind of surprised at how many people I recognized in the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, there's uh, Stephen Tobolowsky, of course. Yeah. Uh, Chris Evans. I mean, wait, no, Chris Elliot. Elliot, not Chris Evans. <laughs> um, Although, what has happened to Andy McDowell? I don't know. Andy McDowell was in like every romantic comedy between 1986 and 1995, and then apparently, as far as I can tell, never in a movie again. She's just like, eh, I'm done. I'm done. I've made enough money. I. Uh... Maybe she only knew how to do the romantic comedy thing, and then she got a little a little bit like too old to be cast in those roles and she couldn't transition to something else. You know who I noticed that I that I was not expecting to see in this movie is Michael Shannon, who has kind of recently become famous because of his roles in things like uh well he was in that premium rush, that biking movie earlier this year. He's in Boardwalk Empire. Mm. Um he's gonna be in Man of Steel as General Zod. Uh, oh, he's been he's been like quietly becoming more and more famous over the last few years. But he's the uh, kid who uh, is getting married, and at the very end comes and comes and thanks Bill Murray's character for, for oh. putting them together. Very odd, oddly happy role to see him in. Usually, he's this very kind of dark, brooding guy. It's kind of weird. Um, this movie is fantastic, and it, w- this movie is really a. A, a, a case study of how a film doesn't have to make logical sense as long as it makes emotional sense. You know what I mean? Like, this movie does not... It doesn't even pretend like it has to provide uh, explanations for anything that happens. You know, exactly. He, enters, he just enters the time loop, and he's just... That's where he is, and... There's no reason mm-mm. for it to mm-mm. happen, and there's there's really no reason that it ended. 
No, no. I mean, it, there's no logical reason that it ended, but because, like, we're looking for cues in in Phil's character so much. You know, we understand that he went into the time loop because he's a horrible person, and he exited the time loop because he managed to stop being a horrible person, and so it ties, like, the plot of the movie to the character development in the movie in a way that shouldn't work, but somehow just does. Right. Um, and it may, really made me think that, you know, you and I spend a lot of time talking about how some films don't make sense. We talked about it a lot with Prometheus. We talked a lot about it with uh, Dark Knight Rises and stuff over the summer. Um, but what Groundhog Day really proves is that I, I think that that to some extent those plot problems don't matter as long as you can understand what the film wants you to uh, the the journey that the film wants to take you on. Like in this, it's very clear at the beginning. He's an asshole. Everyone keeps telling him he's an asshole. People keep like directly articulating his character journey to him as the movie goes on. You know, like at one point uh, he's drinking with those two guys uh, in the bowling alley and one of them's like, I bet you're a glass half empty kind of guy. And <laughs> like, <laughs> like uh, people are constantly telling him just like what a jerk he is. And, and then, uh, you know, obviously he kind of, he kind of changes over the course of the movie. And, uh, you know, because we go on that journey with him, we don't care whether or not the plot of the movie makes sense. Right. I was in the Virgin Islands once. I met a girl. We ate lobster, drank pina coladas. At sunset, we made love like sea otters. That was a pretty good day. Why couldn't I get that day over and over? You know, some guys would look at this glass and they would say, you know, that glass is half empty. Other guys would say, that glass is half full. I think you was a glasses half empty kind of guy, am I right? What would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was exactly the same and nothing that you did mattered? Now that sums it up for me. In fact, I read in the Wikipedia page that they were originally thinking about um, about providing an explanation uh, and they decided not to. Like they, they originally had some kind of, uh, you know, Deus Ex Machina, where it was like a, you know, maybe it was a like a god or something like that, that like cursed him with this, with this, uh, reliving the same day over and over again. Oh, I had read that they were originally gonna start the movie just in the middle of uh, the the narrative, I guess, of him oh, being weird. stuck. That would also, I think both of those would have been really disastrous. That would have been, I think, a little too confusing. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, a lot of exposition happens in that in those early scenes that, before that, he gets stuck. That first day beforehand, yeah. And it sets up, you know, what the day went like kind of originally so that you're able to see every one of the days after that as kind of a variation on the theme. You know what I mean? Like it's you, you see the same people and they're doing the same things and yep. stuff like that. So I I don't I don't really know how that would have worked. I, I wonder how far they went with either of those ideas. Also, I guess they were gonna also have Andy McDowell be part of 
outside of the time loop. Something that something that is a little bit interesting to me about this movie is that it it's a incredible movie. Like I would say, one of the best comedies ever made. Um, but they seem to have made one of the best comedies ever made, like semi accidentally. You know what I mean? Like nobody who was working on the film seems to have been really cognizant of the film that they were making. And there were lots of these false starts in terms of the script writing and stuff like that. And then even once the movie came out, like the reception to it was like pretty good, but not amazing. Like, you know, people thought it was a perfectly serviceable comedy, but not any of these people's best efforts. And, um, it was only kind of retrospectively that people began to look back at it and realize kind of how, how tightly, how tightly constructed it was and how incredibly funny it was and how much, you know, it really epitomized uh, what this kind of comedy could be. So, like, when I hear things like they were originally thinking about starting halfway in the middle and they were originally thinking about, you know, having Andy McDowell travel with him, it's like, it just, like, blows my mind that they... <laughs> you think that people come into these things with these master plans, you know, like... Like, something so, so well orchestrated, how could mm-hmm. it have been so easily derailed? <laughs> it's like, actually, no... It's like pretty much just total luck that these people managed to assemble themselves and make this particular movie at this particular time and and have it be so perfect. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, to some extent, this is not even really a time travel movie. I mean, it's it's pretty much the only real example of a time loop that I can think of in like popular film that but like most uh, that have time loops in it it doesn't really explain why it happens right so like run lola run is another example that was listed under time travel movies when we were putting this list together and also has the same scenario that gets repeated multiple times but uh, you know it's a well yeah it's a i mean the idea of a time loop is i think relatively not common but popular as far as a mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like people understand concept. how it works so, I mean there's there's been like a Twilight Zone episode about that right yeah um, there's an X-Files episode it's a Star Trek episode uh, there's a Supernatural <laughs> episode um, so I mean it's a I think it's a well I guess a relatively common trope yeah but uh Groundhog's Day seems to really get it down. Yeah, well, and it helps with the movie's really funny, and that Bill Murray gives a great performance in, in the lead, and, and all of the supporting characters are really strong, too. Even if Stephen Dawlowski is uh, as kind of normal, uh, a little bit over the top. Um, oh. I mean, he's over the top in most of the stuff that he's in. Maybe it's not a fair strike against him, but... Um, I thought it was interesting, like, the the reports of how many days go by while he's in the loop seem to vary pretty wildly. Well, yeah, because, so, I mean, you, there's, like, a concrete number that you can distinctly count, I think, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but just because of the the leaps that his character takes in between them, you have to assume that more time has passed. Yeah. Well, another thing, it seems like there's a lot of stuff that we know that got left out of this movie. It's kind of weird that we keep talking about things that were in the script and got taken out. But I guess originally they had a plot device where he was counting the days by reading 
Oh yeah, like a book at the a, library, and he was able to tell. A day. Mm-hmm. And that would have been kind of smart, I think. That that that, that seems quite clever. Um, it, it seems clever, but I don't think that that information is really necessary. No, me neither. Um, In fact, I I almost think it detracts from from the movie. I saw that uh, Harold Ramis has said a couple of different a couple of different time frames. Um, he said ten years once, which I think I think that one makes the most sense to me. I think if you did nothing else all the time, you could become like a ice carver and learn how to play the piano pretty well. You think you, in ten years you think you can go from not knowing how to play the piano to playing it like he did at the concert and sculpting yeah. ice and speaking French and Italian. Mm, the French and Italian stuff is a little tougher. And then all that time he wasted like boning everyone in the city in the town. <laughs> uh I think I think ten years is it's certainly much more reasonable than ten thousand years, which was the other number that Ramus threw out there. Yeah. Which well, I think is way too long. Like now we're approaching jaunt territory to reference that same short story again, where I don't understand how any person lives for ten thousand years and doesn't just go insane. I know, I know. Um, I, I I mean if it, were, if it were on a line, I think it's closer to 10 than 10,000, but I think 10 is kind of shy. Um, it's, it's a quite dark period in the middle of the film where he starts to kill himself over and over again. Yes. And, and I think it is necessary for them to show that despair. You know? I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a moment in his character evolution. Yeah, yeah. But it's it it is always a little bit startling to me that they actually go there and actually do that. Um, I think it works. I think they pull it off with well, enough. Because there's there's a certain almost like tongue in cheek way where because like you see him just like walk downstairs and just grab the toaster without. Yeah. <laughs> or and I don't I don't there's there's something something just a little farcical about it. Especially, yeah. especially the first one, like seeing the groundhog drive the car. <laughs> check your mirrors. Check your mirrors. This is a little absurd. <laughs> corner of your eye. Yeah, just, just the corner. <laughs> of your, it's like it. It gives it a little levity. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was I gonna say? Oh, and I did like that they even addressed the fact that it would be kind of weird for in one day Andy McDowell. I also like how I don't remember, like, I get Rita. I don't Rita. remember the characters' names. I'm very yeah. bad at the characters' names. It's just, they're Bill Murray and Andy McDowell and Chris <laughs> Elliott. <laughs> um, but I like, they even at one point they address, like, it must be weird to go from one day, like, you know, thinking I'm an asshole to, you know, liking me. And then it's like, no, and then just blow by it. Yeah, when, I mean, I, in, in, when we, in reality, like it would be kind of, it would be kind of crazy. And I think the only thing that makes it work is that it's implied at the beginning of the story. I think that he and Rita don't know each other very well. Yes, like he and Chris Elliott's character, like yeah, they've been working together for a super long time, and that guy's probably the most skeptical of of uh, Phil's transformation. But um. He and Rita are supposed to have just kind of met, I think. Yeah, she's kind of new on the job. Yeah. Which I think kind of makes it weird that he becomes so infatuated with her. Well, I think it would be really weird what happens, like, day two. Like, he goes back to work and everybody he knew 
who thought he was an asshole. Now he's just a super nice guy. Like that's, that's like having a stroke kind of like, uh, personality reversal, you know, like, I don't know. I feel like people must've been really worried about him for a while. Um, well, that's why he's, they, they're going to move to Punxsutawney at the end. Yeah. Which was like the one note in the movie that I didn't really buy. I was like, if I'd been stuck in this town for between 10 and 40 years, like the moment that they ended, I would be getting the fuck out of there. I would never want to stay in Punxsutawney. Could be some sort of like Stockholm syndrome. I guess so. Yeah, and, and I mean, at this point, he knows everything about the town, mm-hmm. even if it's only in the context of one day. One day, yeah. Actually, maybe even grimmer than when he kills himself repeatedly is when he like continuously fails to save that old homeless guy. That is also, yeah. Like very that one like there's no there's not really much levity there to to uh bust into the sadness. I, like he no, just, yeah, that, that's pretty much just straight on straight on. I wonder if I don't know. Part of me feels like maybe that's necessary. Like maybe you need to have that kind of uh range of emotion in your movie to to break up the monotony of of just a straight comedy or something like that. Yeah, and I mean it well because as it takes as that scene itself is so serious i think it kind of helps showcase that he's taking himself more seriously yeah it adds like genuine emotional weight to his transformation because it's like it's a way for him to prove that he's not just being selfish because he has like a semi transformation earlier in the movie where he's like i'm going to become a nice guy and i'm going to have like a perfect date for rita but it's all selfish you know it's all just like you're only doing this so that you can uh, like sleep with her, right? And so it doesn't work. Like he doesn't get out of the thing. Um, he has to truly become like a selfless person to uh, to to make it happen. <laughs> Dustin Howey of the Washington Post noted that even though the film is a good Bill Murray vehicle, Groundhog Day will never be designated as a national film treasure by the Library of Congress. The film was selected by the National Film Preservation Board for preservation in the Library of Congress in 2006. That's a great deadpan <laughs> Wikipedia uh, statement where it's like, here's this asshole saying something wrong. Here's how he was wrong. <laughs> We're not making uh, any judgments. We're just showing how what he said was directly, facts. directly contradicted by reality. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was, I guess, uh, during filming, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis had a huge falling out. Yeah, I read about that. And then they, like, didn't talk to each other for, like, ten years. But I didn't have any, like, context for it. I don't think they've ever talked about it. Well, Bill Bill Murray's a pretty weird person. He is. uh, Press-wise, anyway. Um, I think it's interesting that after this movie... Uh, Harold Ramis's career takes a real like right down the toilet man like you know before this he's coming off of being the director for Caddyshack and National Lampoon's Vacation and Groundhog Day and you know he's been an actor in Ghostbusters and um, then if you look at his career after this it's like analyze this and analyze that bedazzled bedazzled your favorite and uh Year one and 
You did one episode of The Office? Like, right? just, like, not... Like, what happened? You made, like, three of the greatest comedies of the decade, and then you just, like, disappeared. No, but Groundhog Day was great, and it's a it's a form of, uh, of uh, time travel that we haven't seen yet, where, you know, he's traveling to the past, but he's not... It's not a parallel universe kind of thing, and it's not really a trying to change the future kind of thing. It's just it. It's all about him. Yeah. It's like much more uh, selfish in a way than the other, than the other films that we've seen. So you know, all that happens. You know, it's not like the world has changed. It's not like alternate Greendale. You know, uh, or not Greendale. Uh, alternate Hill Valley. Hill Valley. Uh, like doesn't exist. It's just like this one guy is now better at his life. It quite reminded me of A Christmas Carol, which is a comparison that I hadn't thought of before, but which is basically oh. the same story. Yeah. Or the same character arc with a different kind of supernatural plot element. Although, I mean, like, I think the 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 very general character arc of a uh, not-great protagonist and his redemption through whatever supernatural I don't know it like transcends I mean we talked about it all the time with with the Pixar films where it seemed like every Pixar film the uh, moral was learning to put the needs of others above the needs of yourself mm-hmm. and that's exactly what he learns here too we're taking a little bit of a jump forward if I remember correctly for next week uh uh, I think we go from the early 90s all the way to the early 2000s, right? Exactly, exactly. So next it, time, we will be discussing both the 1968 it, and the 2001 Planet of the Apes films. Oh, is it Planet of the Apes? Well, okay. I guess Planet of the Apes and Donnie Darko both came out in the same year. So I don't okay, know hold whether, on. Don, I don't know whether I we look actually... at, I'm looking at the uh, release dates. Mm-hmm. I think Planet of the Apes beats it. I think so too. Because uh, Donnie Darko is October. Yeah, April third, nineteen sixty-eight. Hold on, that's this nineteen sixty-eight one. Uh, this is July twenty-seventh, two thousand one. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So we're on Planet of the Apes next time. Um, so take a look at one or both of the Planet of the Apes movies. We'll be discussing those next time. Also, we still have two slots open. We've got a couple of uh, suggestions for what we should do for our last two slots on the time travel series, but we are still accepting suggestions. So if you have a time travel movie that you really, really, really think we should talk about, please uh, tweet us, email us, ask us a question on Tumblr, that kind of stuff. Or if there's anything you want us to talk about, we would love to hear your suggestions and ideas. So let us know. Indeed. We really would. I feel like we got a lot more feedback in the beginning. Recently, it's kind of slacked off a little bit. So we want to encourage people to... Eh. You know, let us know what, what you think of it. 